Thanks, Johnny. Uh, well, over the last few weeks, uh, since Easter, we've been going through a, a short sermon series, uh, and we've called it Unprecedented. Uh, the word unprecedented, you may have noticed, has been thrown around a fair bit recently. Uh, whether you're talking about the, the droughts and the fires of 2019, uh, what feels like a long time ago now, uh, or if you're talking about uh, the COVID pandemic uh, of 2020 and 21, uh, whether you're talking about the recent floods, uh, or climate change, or any number of things, uh, issues in the world today, uh, the, the word unprecedented. Uh, gets thrown around a lot. But the reality is what, what we're going through might be unprecedented in our time, uh, in our lifetimes, but it's not unprecedented in the history of the world. And in many ways, uh, while our society cries unprecedented when it comes to all of these things, they'll do everything they can to insist that Jesus is not unprecedented, that Jesus is not special. That there's nothing unique about Jesus. That perhaps he may have been a good teacher. Perhaps he may have even been a good man. But certainly nothing unique and unprecedented. But as we open the Bible, we find the events of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. We find that these events really are unprecedented. In the history of the world, nothing has happened like this. They're unique in so many ways. He's the only person in history to not deserve punishment for his sins, to not deserve the penalty for his sins, which is death, but yet he chose to die in our place, to suffer our penalty. He was the first person in history to experience an eternal resurrection. There have been many people who've been kind of brought back from the dead or resuscitated throughout history, and perhaps you can think of examples in the Bible, people like Lazarus, who was in the tomb for four days. But these were resuscitations. They were brought back to life only to die again. When Jesus was raised, he was raised eternal. Unprecedented. And not only that, but his ascension was unlike any other. There were others, perhaps you could think of Enoch or Elijah, who, were, who ascended to heaven. They were taken up to be with God. But when Jesus ascended, he sat down at the right hand of God and he is Lord of all. He builds his kingdom, he rules his people, not from the outside, but from the inside by his Holy Spirit. What Jesus did and is doing now is unprecedented. And tonight in the last sermon in our series, we turn our focus from what Jesus did to what Jesus is going to do. See, one day Jesus will return. And this morning we looked at 2 Peter chapter 3. Tonight we're going to be looking at Revelation 21 and 22. But we saw in 2 Peter chapter 3 that the reason why it's taken so long for Jesus to return is not because he's slow, not because he's delaying his return, but because he wants people to repent. Because he's patient. But, Peter says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. God will bring judgment on all the wicked and evil. This world will be destroyed. And in its place, Peter says, will be a new heaven and earth, the home of righteousness. And it's this new heaven and earth that Jesus' return is going to bring that we're going to focus on tonight. It's the topic 
of Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Now, um, I get really excited talking about the new heaven and earth. I don't, perhaps you do as well. Um, uh, and I love to, to think and, and imagine what it's going to be like, right? Uh, what we're going to do, how we're going to feel, uh, whether or not there'll be cars in heaven, uh, whether or not perhaps we'll all be driving Lamborghinis and that sort of thing. Um, but I love to think about and, and to, to speculate um, what it's going to be like. Uh, and so I need to be careful as I preach tonight because I know I'm prone to speculation. I need to be careful because we need to know what we can have confidence in, what we can be sure about the new creation, not what we think it might be like or we hope it might be like, but what can we be sure of so that we might look forward to it with certainty. And I suspect probably many of us uh, tend towards speculation uh, as we think about the new creation. So what can we have confidence in? What can we look forward to? What can we know about the new creation, our eternal home? Uh, before we open up to Revelation 21 and 22, uh, before we have a look at what's to come, we need to understand that actually the new creation has started already. The new creation has actually started already. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, Paul says that Jesus has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, he calls Jesus the firstborn from among the dead. See, when Jesus was raised, he was raised with a new body, with an eternal body. And so Jesus is the first part of the new creation, the first fruits. The new creation has already begun. And where you see first fruits as Jesus is, then you know there's more to come. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Which means if you trust in Jesus tonight, then you are a new creation. The new heaven and earth, the life of the new creation, has already begun in you. Now, it's not, of course, that you have your new creation body yet. We still inhabit these frail bodies uh, that break down all the time. And as you get older, you experience this. We haven't got our new bodies yet. That's still to come. But by the work of the Holy Spirit, you've been born again to live a new life. A life that belongs not in this creation, not in this world, but in the new world, in the new creation. A creation characterized by holiness, by godliness, by righteousness. And so there's a tension here. See, we live in an age of now but not yet, don't we? There are some things that are true of us now that will remain true of us for eternity. That we've been born again. That we have this peace with God, forgiveness for our sins. But there are some things that are not yet. We haven't been given our new bodies. We still struggle against the sinful nature. We live in a sinful and broken world. And so that makes it difficult to live the life of the new creation while we're still living in this creation, right? It makes it difficult. And so I hope tonight, and my prayer is tonight, that as we focus on the new creation and the home that we look forward to, that we will be encouraged to live that life now. To begin to live a life of holiness and godliness, to live a life of righteousness, a life that characterizes the new creation, that will begin to live that now 
even though we still deal with sin, even though we still live with broken bodies and a broken world. So have a look with me at the first three verses of Revelation chapter 21. Keep that open in front of you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. One of the first things that we notice about the new creation, and we actually notice this as Jesus is raised from the dead, is that where we spend eternity with God, it isn't in a spiritual realm. It isn't heaven, but it's actually the new earth. See, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God, and God dwells with his people on this new earth. See, if you trust in Jesus, when you die, you go to heaven. Your body stays on earth. Your spirit goes to be with God in heaven. But that's not our final state. That's not what we look forward to for eternity. That's a spiritual state and a temporary state. What we look forward to for eternity is physical and permanent. We'll have physical bodies and live in a physical new earth. The next thing you might notice as you read through this passage is that the new creation is described in terms of what's not there. I don't know if you noticed that as we went through, but have a look at verse 1. In the end of verse 1, he says there was no longer any sea. In verse 4, he says he'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. In verse 8, he says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderous, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they'll be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. In other words, these, these sinners won't be there. He's describing it in terms of what's not there. If you look down at verse 27, chapter 1, verse 27, Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's interesting, isn't it, that the new creation is described in terms of what's not there. Remember, God created this world good. When God made this world, after he had made Adam and Eve, he described the world as very good. And although... Adam and Eve's sin broke this world and corrupted every part of it. We still do find good in this world, don't we? Whether we find good in creation, in a beautiful sunset or something like that, or whether we find good in people in acts of kindness and generosity, we do find good in this world. But what Adam and Eve introduced was evil. They introduced evil. What wasn't there in the beginning was wickedness. And so when God makes everything new, one of the key differences, one of the first things John notices as he sees this vision, is what's not there. Sin. Evil. And sinners. Sinners are not there. 
And the struggle here, of course, is that I'm a sinner. And you are as well. Even as children of God. As I led us in repentance earlier, did you notice I, we repent as children of God? But yet we still sin, don't we? So how is it then that we who sin can hope to enter the new creation? Well, notice in verse 7. Revelation 21, verse 7. He says, those who are victorious, or those who conquer, depending on your translation, will inherit all of this. Now, if we just pluck that verse out of context in Revelation, it can make it sound like it's those who are victorious over their sin, right? Those who conquer their sin and become people who don't sin anymore, those are the people that will inherit all of this. But that's actually not what it means to be victorious in Revelation. In Revelation, victorious, to be victorious doesn't mean not sinning, doesn't mean to be sinless, it means persevering in your faith in Jesus. See, in chapter 12, where we're shown this great battle between God, uh, uh, between Satan and believers, disciples of Jesus. And it says this in verse 11. It's describing believers, those who defeat Satan. And it says, they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They conquer. They are victorious by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Not by their own sinlessness, but by Jesus's sinlessness and his sacrifice on our behalf. Those who inherit the new creation are those who trust in Jesus, in his sacrifice. That's what it means to have victory in Revelation. To put your trust in Jesus and to testify that he is your saviour. By his blood you are saved, not by your own obedience. And so it's those who trust in Jesus that will inherit the new creation. Notice, as you look at the list of kind of sins, those sinners who won't be there in the new creation, it starts with the cowardly. It's an interesting one to start with, isn't it? Because cowardice is not something we normally think of as a sin. But as you read through the book of Revelation, you'll notice that the cowardly are those who reject their faith in Jesus, those who abandon their faith in Jesus in the face of suffering. And so it's those who abandon their faith in Jesus, they will not inherit the new creation. And notice it's followed by the unbelieving. The cowardly, those who reject their faith in Jesus, and the unbelieving, those who never have faith in Jesus, they will not inherit the new creation. So trust in Jesus. Persevere. Keep trusting him. Don't give up. So the new creation, as we look at the new creation, we see that it's, it's physical, we live on the new earth, and we notice that it's marked by what won't be there. Sin and sinners, those who reject Jesus, and all the effects of sin. Next, we see, and we, what we can have confidence in, is that it will be unimaginably glorious. And we stop reading at verse 8, but if you keep reading from verse 9, really down to the 22 verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 5, uh, you'll notice uh, the heavenly city. Uh, John describes this, this heavenly city, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God. 
And if you just glance through those verses, have a look at how it's described. It shines with the glory of God. Its brilliance is like that of a precious jewel. Walls made of jasper, city made of pure gold, foundations decorated with every kind of precious stone, gates made of pearls. There's been a lot made of the symbolism here. There's been lots of discussion, lots of arguments over what each of these different precious metals, precious jewels means. Lots of people spend lots of time arguing over them, but there is one thing we can be absolutely sure of, that this city is unimaginably glorious. And this will be our eternal home. Does anyone watch, um, or has anyone watched MTV's Cribs? No one. Okay, it's an old show, started in like 2000. I'm surprised because normally I'm the one that hasn't watched the shows, but here I am, I've watched this show and you haven't. So let me describe it to you. Um, in, in Cribs, uh, what they do is they go around to these celebrities' houses um, and uh, you know, famous pop stars or whatever movie stars and they show them through their house. You know, here's my fridge with, doesn't have any, it's never, it's never got food in it, it's all just drinks. Um, and they show them around the house and you, you, you see these celebrities' houses and you go, you know, this is pretty nice. This is a pretty good, and, and you can't imagine what it would be like to live in that house, right? Uh, every now and then, um, uh, there's, there's some YouTube, uh, uh, guys on YouTube that do videos uh, on really, really expensive houses for sale, right? And they take you through these, like, you know, we're talking like three-storey um, penthouse apartments in, in New York City, like overlooking Central Park and things like that. They take you through and they're like, you know, it's got seven bedrooms and massive living areas and home cinemas and like all sorts of things, right? Um, and you kind of, you could watch these videos and how would it be to live in one of these houses? And they're like, yeah, it's $120 million house. Anyway, it's probably not great that I watch these things because, you know, the whole point of them is designed to, for you to be envious, right? Uh, and to want these houses. Uh, but here's the point. No matter how much money you have, no matter how incredible a home you might be able to build in this life, no matter if you're insanely rich and you build the most ridiculous home on this earth, it is nothing in comparison to our eternal home. Our eternal home will be unimaginably glorious. So don't build your castle here on earth. Don't chase after riches, houses, whatever it is that you chase after in this earth. Chase after that new creation. Live for that home. Notice also, um, as you read through, there's no talk of kind of the, the individual houses or apartments in this new city, right? The, the glory of this new city is a shared glory. We live in this city together. It isn't something that only the ultra-rich get to experience. It isn't something that only the ultra-holy get to experience. It's all those that trust in Jesus, small or great, will experience the joy of living in this unimaginably glorious home in the new creation. And as we read through that description, you can't help but notice that this city is incredibly secure. 
Now, back in the day that this was written, uh, they had cities with walls, right? We don't really have cities with walls these days. Uh, walls don't really keep us secure anymore. But back in those days, you had big high walls. That meant your city was secure. In verse 12, we see that the city has a great high wall. And in verse 16, uh, as the angel measures the walls, we find them to be 12,000 stadia high and 144 cubits thick. Now, of course, you all know your biblical measurements, right? You know exactly how big that is. 12,000 stadia uh, is a little over 2,000 kilometers, uh, and 144 cubits is about 65 meters. Uh, so you can imagine a wall that's 2,000 kilometers high uh, and 65 meters thick, and put that in a first century context. This city is incredibly secure. I mean, no one's getting in. Nothing is getting into this city. It is safe and secure. Now, we need to be a little careful, of course, with the imagery here. See, John's writing apocalyptic literature. doesn't mean when we get to the new creation, we're going to find literally this cube of a city um, that's 2,000 kilometres high and wide and, and deep. But the point is, it's secure. There is nothing getting into this city. When we live in this city, in the new creation, in the new Jerusalem, we will be secure. Safe forever. And finally, and I think most importantly, we will be fully and forever in the presence of God our Father and Jesus our Saviour and Brother. Have a look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And if you have a look down at verses 22 and 23, he says, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord, Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives, its light, gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. And then in chapter 22, verses 3 and 4, no longer will there be any curse. It's another thing that won't be there in the new creation. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. The Bible begins in Genesis with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, in the presence of God. God would talk with them. He would walk with them in the cool of the day. They would see his face and enjoy his presence. When they rebelled against him, they were cast out of his presence. And what we see, everything you, you see throughout the rest of the Bible, is about restoring that relationship. About bringing us once again into the presence of God. Because it's in his presence that we find fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He is the source of all good things, even life itself. In Psalm 27, David writes this. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing David wants, above all else in life, the one thing he wants is to dwell in the house of the Lord, to be in the presence of God. In Psalm 84, the psalmist writes, For a day in your courts 
is better than a thousand elsewhere. Here is the real treasure. Here is the real joy. The presence of God. Living with Him forever. See, God, in the end, is the reason why this city is so safe and secure. God is the reason why this city is so glorious. It shines with the glory of God. To be with your Father, who loves you enough to give His one and only Son for you. To be with the Son, your brother and Saviour, who loves you so much that He gave His life for you. To be in His presence, to see His face, to have your Heavenly Father wipe your tears away, and to live safe, secure in His presence forevermore. There we will find true joy. So don't give up. Don't go the way of the world, rejecting Jesus and following the desires of your heart, because all that leads to is the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Persevere to the end. Keep trusting Jesus. Keep repenting of your sins. Because look at what you have coming. This is your eternal life. We're going to respond in song. Uh, one of my favourite songs. One of the advantages of playing music is you get to choose the songs, right? Uh, this song is called Christ is Mine Forevermore. It's one we've done fairly often here. Uh, and the way it ends, uh, I'll read out the, the last verse. Mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the King I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Please stand and join us as we sing. <laughs>